welcome to a social distancing edition of the Psychology in Action podcast, where we've had the opportunity to catch up with some of the leading researchers on the psychological impacts of the COVID-19 outbreak. First, we'll hear from Dr. Diana Tamir regarding an ongoing study looking at the effects of social distancing measures in light of previous research from social neuroscience. It's also not the case that people are lacking in social interactions. It's Mm. just the nature and the dynamics of those social interactions have changed. Mm. So we have no idea what effect it has on people's thoughts or people's behaviors to interact with people only through Zoom. Then we'll hear from Dr. Katie Young about her recent study that's just begun assessing how COVID-19 has been impacting our mental health. There's a lot of advice about what we should be doing right now. You know, we should all be sticking to a routine and eating healthily and exercising and doing all of these other things. But can we start to put numbers on how effective these different strategies are? Mm. Uh, There's some things that work for some people and different things that work for others. So we're really hoping that by gathering kind of as broad and large data set as we can during this thing that's happening to everyone, can we mm-hmm. start to unpack some of those relationships between things that pro- like sort of elevate your risk or uh, promote resilience? And then finally, we'll hear from Dr. Livia Tomova regarding a recently completed study identifying how our brains process cravings for food or for social contact in similar ways. So when I read this paper that was published in 2016, I was kind of like, hmm, like, could this be true in humans as well? Could we ever test that? That would be super interesting. So, and then Rebecca and I, we discussed it and then we kind of set up this project, but it was like, we had no idea of that it would be very relevant (laughs) right now. There's a lot of great information here. So let's get right to it. So I'm Diana Tamir and I'm an assistant professor at Princeton University in the psychology department. And my lab, the Princeton Social Neuroscience Lab, We study how people think about people and how um, our brain allows us to do that. So my my understanding is that as part of understanding how people's brains are thinking about other people, um, that your lab has grown increasingly interested in what's been going on even just in the last few weeks with the COVID outbreak in the United States. Yeah. So some of the research that we've done in our lab previously looked at how our minds Uh, wander towards the social world in general. So when your mind is allowed to kind of think about whatever it wants, when it wanders through thought space, um, a lot of research up to this point has shown that it thinks primarily about the social world. It thinks about other people. Mm. Uh, But we wanted to know in this previous research whether or not um, people think about other people because our minds are social by default or whether people might think about other people because we're just surrounded by other people. And so mm. we're thinking about the things that we're surrounded with. So we're, we're processing the environment that we're in. Mm. And what we found in that previous research is that if you put people in short periods of isolation, so in our study, it was seven hours, you find that they think about other people less. So their spontaneous social thoughts decrease. And if you have people engage in a really social activity, then their social thoughts increase. Um, So what we were curious about when it comes to uh, COVID-19 is, you know, we're all experiencing an incredible amount of social distancing, social isolation. We're interacting with people less and less face-to-face, maybe Mm -hmm. more and more over the internet. And we wanted to know how does that 
social distancing impact the way that we're thinking? Uh, does it change the amount that we're thinking about the social world? And how does changes in our social thoughts impact the way in which we're going to um, behave towards other people? Are we going to be more or less pro-social? Are we going to feel connected or less connected to other people? Are we going to feel more or less lonely? Um, to what extent do these online social interactions um, help to actually buffer us against the, the loss of in-person mm. interactions? So it's a, it's a really interesting concept, this idea that um, because we're surrounded by other people so much in our everyday lives, typically, social mm -hmm. information is really salient information. And as we're becoming more and more socially distant from other people, the information in our environment that is salient might be changing. Yeah, exactly. So typically on a, on a regular pre-COVID day, we might see tens or hundreds of people. We might be with some of them just in their presence, with other ones we will actually have an interaction with. Maybe it's a short interaction, or maybe it's a longer interaction, or maybe we're just you know, sitting with not just one person, but groups of people. And mm. so the, the interactions that we have pre-COVID are super, super social. And mm -hmm. That's just not the case anymore. Um, and so what happens inside of our minds and you know, inside of our bodies uh, when we don't, we, when, when that kind of connection to the social world gets disrupted? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I'm really interested to hear about how you're planning to measure these sorts of variables about uh, measuring connectedness and loneliness and pro-social behavior emerging over the course of the COVID outbreak. Mm -hmm. Well, so there's some standard measures in social psychology that allow us to assess things like loneliness, um, so how connected or disconnected people feel from the people mm. around them, um, or need to belong, so how much people feel like their uh, needs to be social are being met versus mm. not being met, um, how connected people feel to the people around them, so um, we have people you know, rate how, how overlapping their sense of self is with a variety of others in their, their environment. So um, their close friends and family, their community members, the average American, or, you know, someone on the globe. Um, mm -hmm. And we're interested in seeing whether or not there's shifts in the way in which people feel connected to people in their environments. So, um, are we more or less connected specifically to people that we're close to, or are we kind of expanding our circles uh, to include more and more people in, in the world? Yeah, so what do we hypothesize is gonna be the case here? Well, I don't wanna give away too much of the results because yeah. the people uh, listening to your podcast will wanna take our survey. No, fair. Uh, but, you know, I think there's, there's a couple of interesting alternative hypotheses that mm. um, might be equally likely. So I see. Um, in the case of how does social isolation affect our thoughts, you know, we've previously shown that the more people are isolated from the social world, the less social their thoughts are. So their thoughts kind of follow what the, what exists in the social world. Mm. Um, but there's an alternative hypothesis, which is that, you know, in previous studies, we haven't really changed how much people need social connection. Um, we didn't make people feel lonely after just seven hours of being alone. So maybe after longer periods of isolation, after mm. 
becoming lonely because you don't have that kind of sustained social connection, your mind compensates. And so it's because you're not getting social connection from your physical surrounding, your, your mind starts to think of more social things. And so your, your social thought is going to be um, increased. You know, we came into our original studies thinking that those are two equally viable hypotheses. Um, we initially found evidence for the social processing account where we think social things when we're surrounded by social things and we don't think social things when we're not surrounded by social things. But, mm. you know, nobody's ever seen a disruption of our social world to the same extent that we're seeing right now. Um, yeah. We don't know how much people's uh, feelings of loneliness or social connection are going to be impacted. And to the extent that they're impacted to a much greater extent than we've ever seen before, then we may see new things in terms of the way in which it's affecting people's thoughts. Hmm. So it's the, that's a really interesting idea that, um, you know, the evidence that we have to this point might, it might direct us in a specific direction, right? But at the same time, there's such a dose effect too going on right now, where we're having such a different level of social deprivation or such a different uh, length of social deprivation than previous studies have been able to do because, first of all, of course, no IRB is going to approve a pandemic as a way of studying social behavior, right? And so there's no, there's no pre-existing data to work with to get a sense of something of this magnitude, which is why it would be fascinating to see, do we see effects in line with the previous work or do we see substantial divergences based on this unprecedented life event? Yeah. And it's, it's also not the case that people are lacking in social interactions. It's mm. just the nature and the dynamics of those social interactions have changed. Mm. So we have no idea what effect it has on people's thoughts or people's behaviors to interact with people only through Zoom. Yeah. <laughs> or we have no idea what effect it has when you reduce the number of in-person social interactions from you know 50 or so a day to you're interacting with just your partner and your two young children. And so there you have plenty of social interaction, but it's of a very different nature than the kind that you see in, you know, pre-COVID world. So mm -hmm. um, we're not just looking at, you know, deep overall net decreases in people's social interaction. We're just, we're looking at uh, changes in the, the full landscape of what people are able to do uh, in terms of their social interaction. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you, you mentioned um, psychological constructs like loneliness and connectedness, and it strikes me that those are really quite similar to constructs that would be associated with mental health. And I'm curious what your thoughts are about how um, mental health factors might be incorporated into the results of your current study. Yeah, great question. We're, we're really interested in that as well as, as well as some of our collaborators. And um, to that end, we're going to be including measures of um, depression and anxiety in our study. Um, one of the, the things that we can test there is, you know, what are the longitudinal effects of different levels of isolation on people's mm. mental well-being? Um, we can also look at how different aspects of people's thoughts dynamic relate to these um, mental health disorders. So, um, you might imagine that someone who's experiencing a lot of anxiety might uh, report more uh, racing thoughts or more mm. ruminative thoughts around a specific topic. You know, that's yeah. 
Yeah. So are there particular thoughts about how the processes of like empathy might be impacted by the changing nature of the types of people who we're interacting with socially? Yeah. I mean, we do. One thing that we're measuring in our survey is pro-social behaviors. Mm. And, you know, you can think about those as an outcome measure. So how much does your loneliness or your, the amount of social interaction have impact the kind of, um, pro-social behaviors you engage in, but you could also think about it as, you know, that's, that's the dose. Does um, engaging in pro-social behaviors protect your, uh, yourself, your well-being in, in any way? Um, mm. And we don't really know what the relation is yet because we haven't collected all the data, but I think it's an interesting question. Hmm. Yeah. You know, I know that your lab is, is also a neuroscience lab and this particular project, it's probably not going to get much into neuroscience given that it's a remote study. Has your previous work with social neuroscience informed the kinds of things you think might be going on in people's brains as you study these phenomena during the COVID outbreak? Yeah. So one thing to note about our, our prior study is, you know, in the study where we had people sit in a room isolated with no social stimuli whatsoever for seven hours, we afterwards scanned their brain um, mm. to see you know, how do their, how does their brain respond to social, social stimuli after you've been socially deprived? Um, and in one of the studies we, or one of the tasks that we gave people, um, we gave them opportunities to think about different social individuals. So we had them think about themselves. We had them think about a close other. We had them think about um, a famous, but not close other. And we had them think about a control task. So um, something non-social. And what we found was that people's, uh, the, the kind of social parts of the brain, the one region called the dorsomedial prefrontal cortex, <laughs> the region was specifically less active uh, when people were thinking about their close other mm. after they had experienced periods of isolation, which suggests, again, like the, the behavioral data, not only are people thinking less about the social world after periods of isolation, but their brain is kind of uh, less attuned to uh, thinking about close others after periods of isolation. Hmm. Yeah, so it, it, obviously we, we can't have that same sort of study design given the current circumstances, but would you think that something similar might be going on when we're thinking about uh, social deprivation of this scale? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting question to ask. And, you know, we found in that first study that the neural measures correlate really well with, uh, or they, they move in the same direction as the behavioral measures. And so um, that's nice to know because it's really hard to run fMRI studies. And if you can find a really good behavioral measure that you think taps into the same thing as the neural measure, then run with that one. And so that's what we're doing. We're we're running with the behavioral measure that we think captures the phenomenon that we think that we care about, which is um, how much people are thinking about the social world. Mm. I mean, one thing we're really excited about with this study is that one element of it that hasn't yet been launched, but, uh, but will be launched soon, is a 14-day uh, experience sampling study through our uh, mobile application. So we have um, a research platform called The Person Project, Mm -hmm. uh, which you can go to at thepersonproject.org and you can download the app. Um, and shortly we'll be launching a, uh, an EMA study where you can um, sign up to get pings a few times a day and mm -hmm. 
uh, during each ping, you'll, you'll report on something about your social environment and how you're feeling. Um, mm. and, and those kinds of kind of short measures captured in real time, um, I think are going to be a really powerful complement to the longer survey that we're collecting about people, um, people's retrospections of, of over their past day. Um, mm. So here we can get one individual to report over the course of two weeks on how they're doing and what their social environment is. Um, and ultimately what we'd like to do is once we learn about the kinds of social behaviors that protect people the most from feeling lonely and um, experiencing the negative effects of social isolation, we'd like to deploy an intervention also through the person project um, to try to encourage people to engage in the kinds of social behaviors that we think are going to be the most protective. Hmm. So, so in the person project, there will be sort of real-time messages to people's cell phones to encourage them to engage in certain social activity, or is it mostly measuring what's happening? So ultimately both. Um, okay. We're going to start by measuring what mm -hmm. people are doing and how their social behaviors are affecting their well-being. Um, and so we're going to start with a, an initial two-week study where we ping people a few times a day and they report on their social behaviors and how they're doing. Mm. Um, and with this kind of data, we can assess which behaviors are the most protective and which mm. behaviors don't really help. So mm. maybe Zoom really helps and maybe the kinds of face-to-face -face interactions that you can have with whoever you're hunkered down with helps, but maybe um, scrolling on Facebook or scrolling on Twitter doesn't help. And so mm. if we can learn which social behaviors do help and which don't through these real-time reports, then we can start to encourage people to engage in the behaviors that do help and encourage them away from the behaviors that don't help. Mm, so it's like a direct feedback model where someone reports to you the kinds of behaviors they're doing associated with their metrics of well-being. And then over the course of time, you can provide that same person with basically real-time feedback over how their behaviors are affecting their well-being or maybe how changes to their behaviors could improve their well-being. Yeah, one of the cool things about the person project is that at the end of every study, we give people feedback about themselves. So at the end of the two weeks, we're even reporting on the kinds of behaviors we engage in and the way it makes you feel. We can give you feedback about, you know, how do you feel when you're doing behavior A versus behavior B? Mm. So uh, that I think is one of the, the draws of participating in studies on the person project is that you get real feedback about yourself at the end of each experiment. Oh, that's so really cool. You, yeah, you both get to kind of contribute to social science research and also learn about yourself. That's awesome. Great. We really appreciate you joining us. Thanks so much. For those interested in taking part in Dr. Tamir's study, the web address is distancingsurvey.com. So my name is Dr. Katie Young. I'm a lecturer at King's College in London. Uh, normally I study anxiety and depression with a particular focus on anhedonia in adolescence uh, from a neuroscience perspective. Uh, but right now I'm studying the mental health impact of the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, many people probably don't know this, but we used to actually work in the same lab together. So this is an That's especially right. fun one for me. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And I'm really curious to hear a bit about what specific dimensions of mental health you're interested in studying when we think about the COVID-19 outbreak? Yeah, uh, that's a good question. We're actually taking a pretty broad view uh, on mental health. Um, 
my background obviously made me initially think about the anxiety and depression impact you know all the worries that people are likely to have right now are being amplified the social isolation being a big trigger for depression and things like that but um i have a, a group of amazing colleagues actually at king's college and the more people i talk to the more we kind of realized actually there are so many other conditions that are likely to be impacted right now um mm -hmm. OCD, obviously, is a, uh, an ex-anxiety disorder, I believe. Uh, um, <laughs> I think that's right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, likely very highly triggered in a lot of people right now, particularly around all the, the hand-washing guidelines. Mm. Um, but we're also looking at um, ADHD symptoms, uh, looking at eating disorders. We're looking at trauma-related problems. So we're taking kind of a, as broad a view as we can reasonably manage <laughs> in, a, in a survey type study uh, to to get as broad a picture as we can about the mental health impact given that we're in such an unusual and unprecedented situation. Yeah, so you mentioned that there are a lot of folks working on this project with you and so what uh, mm. sort of combination of expertise do you all have that goes into this large project? Yeah, it's quite a fun uh, mixed team. So um, the three other sort of co-investigator professors are um, Two of them run large cohort studies looking at the genetic uh, links to anxiety, depression mm. and eating disorders. So they have a lot of experience in recruiting big cohorts of people. Normally they get them to do online questionnaires and then spit the tube and send us their DNA. Uh, we're not asking that this time, but um, um, we're doing all the, all the questionnaires. And then we have a team member who's um, a psychiatrist who has a lot of the clinical links and is very helpful that way. Especially my two core team members, one has recently um, recently obtained her PhD. She's a sort of statistical genetics slash experimental psychology, which is not a common <laughs> link. Uh, but she has a, a she studies fear conditioning um, via a remote app uh, in large samples of people to try and understand the genetic basis of anxiety type. Uh, types of learning and anxiety um, and the other uh, has recently joined our department she actually was a psychology teacher up until a couple of years ago uh, mm. and now she's sort of moving into to academia so we have quite a broad range of people from different backgrounds and it's been a really fun and interesting experience so far. Yeah um, I'm, one of the things I'm really interested in is how this these unprecedented circumstances have sort of shaped what people are studying and it sounds like mm. this is a group of of folks who have a pretty diverse background in genetics and in neuroscience statistics who have all sort of decided that what they're going to study right now might not involve genetic testing, might not involve right. having someone in a scanner, right? Uh, right. And so how, how did you all end up in this common space of deciding, you know, despite our individual expertise, is this is really what we're going to study right now? Yeah, um, I think it was a bit of a case of, uh, I don't know. The way it came about for me, at least, was um, I was talking with colleagues and there was some talk that Kings might have some funding to look at the impact of this. And we're sort of thinking, oh, what would you do? Or we started chatting about the mental health impact. And the more I thought about it, the more I was like, this is going to be hugely relevant and, and potentially you know, very informative beyond the pandemic. Right. Um, but then I, I called a friend of mine from the department who happens to be a statistical geneticist and talked to her about it and 
she was on the same page and it just it sort of bred out of conversations with people that I know more than you know specifically like I want to plan this study and I'm going to be very you know apply for a grant six months ahead of time and think it all through and be very careful it was far more kind of you know that organic way of just like talking to people I knew and everyone going actually yeah <laughs> we should do something you know that sort of feeling where I guess right now a lot of people are feeling like there's not much you can do and I certainly felt that way of you know when things were getting serious what what use are my skills right now but um, the one thing we can do is try and measure it so <laughs> we should do that. <laughs> so um, you mentioned a few of the things you're hoping to measure in this project mm. um, and so sort of digging into a bit of the science here what are you expecting to find as a part of this process and what kinds of things are you exploring? Yeah, so um, the first goal really is to track symptom change over time. So we know that stressful uh, situations often provoke increased levels of symptoms of mental health problems, particularly anxiety and depression. Given that we're in this kind of unknown chronic stressor that everyone is going through at the same time, uh, can we kind of monitor that um, across the country, uh, look for kind of maybe geographical patterns for here for us here in the UK. There's a particular hotspot in London and the rest of the country is a little less uh, affected. So is that borne out in the, the sort of mental health impact? And looking at how things change over time. So we know that in sort of stressful situations, some people are more at risk of developing more chronic or severe mental health problems, but some people are very resilient to these types of things. And so do we see you know, initial peaks that uh, then dampen down in everyone. Sort of the same way, I don't know, the idea in my head was very much the way we've been looking at sort of the peak and rise of, of coronavirus cases. Can we uh, plot the same thing in terms of a mental health perspective? We're probably going to be on a very different time frame, but can we map out the mental health impact in the same way that we can look at the physical health impact? Mm. And, you know, one of the things that you had mentioned earlier was that you see this as potentially really informative, not just for the COVID outbreak, but um, sort of more broadly developing our understanding of how external factors can influence our mental health. And I was mm. wondering if you could speak more on that. Yeah, so we're digging in a little bit as well to, uh, so in our survey, we have questions about people's current living situations, uh, their work situation, or their any problems with their um, education, if they're students, for example. So we're get, gathering quite a bit of contextual information. We're trying to capture how that's changing over time. So people will complete surveys every two weeks uh, and we'll sort of know any changes there. And then we're also um, assessing various factors that we know sort of contribute to anxiety and depression normally uh, or sort of with other sort of known stressors so things about um, locus of control how much do you feel you're in control of a situation the types of worries that people are having um, loneliness we're doing some measures of that and then we're also looking at the behavioral side of things so beyond the kind of cognitions that go along with it what kinds of behaviors are people engaging with? A, are they following all the social distancing measures and the things that we're being asked to do? But also what kind of um, self-help or self-care behaviors are they engaging in? So mm. there's a lot of advice about what we should be doing right now. You know, we should all be sticking to a routine and eating healthily and exercising and doing all of these other things. But can we start to put numbers on how effective these different strategies are? Mm. Uh, there's some things that work for some people and different things that work for others. So we're really hoping that by gathering kind of as 
broad and large data set as we can during this thing that's happening to everyone, can we mm -hmm. start to unpack some of those relationships between things that pro like sort of elevate your risk or uh, promote resilience? Mm. And, and so how many folks do you anticipate will participate in the study? That is a good question. I've really struggled to put a number on it. Um, we're hoping for in the tens of thousands. Uh, wow. At least. We would love to do more than that. So we're planning quite um, a large uh, social media campaign. We have a, a great social media company who've helped to promote some um, of the previous uh, large cohort studies that I mentioned. We also have a great press officer at King's and we're hoping that this being kind of a project that maybe captures a lot of people's attention right now uh, mm. at a time where a lot of people, you know, maybe are in front of their computers a bit more that, that maybe we can capture the attention a little bit and, and try and get as broad a data set as we can. Mm -hmm. It's really cool to have all of the, uh, you, you have so many interesting lotteries that you can look at. And I suppose I'm curious, right. which ones are you placing the most, the highest bets on right now? If you're thinking about which, you know, we're gathering all of this data across a number of different dimensions. You know, I mean, first of all, whether or not I'm employed and if so, how am I functioning mm -hmm. in the workplace? Um, mm -hmm. Do I know someone who um, is sick or recently got sick? Um, do, right. did I get sick? Do I, um, do, do I have impacts in my daily functioning in terms of my ability to exercise, right? Um, right? And among all of the possible things that you can measure, I'm curious which ones you think are most likely to be impacting people's mental health adversely. Yeah, yeah. So there are a few things that particularly interest me. Obviously, they're kind of the more mediators, like the cognitions and the behaviors mm. that are going along with um, worries and, and anxieties as they progress. I think that's you know obviously from a treatment perspective that's fascinating data and sort of understanding how that might translate you know to other situations i think is really fascinating another uh, sort of question that i don't know keeps coming back into my mind is we've sort of in the uk at least identified certain vulnerable groups and obviously a lot of that is in relation to physical health but are there also kind of mental health vulnerable groups uh, hmm. that we should be considering. So, you know, there's a lot of assumptions about uh, social isolation, for example. Um, but it was very interesting in, in sort of planning our study, we had uh, quite a lot of interaction with various groups of service users and uh, patients. And King's has a lot of, um, you know, nice ways of setting that up so that, um, you know, members of the public and patients have some input into our data. Uh, into our studies and the way that we, we design our studies and the types of data we're collecting. One of the things that came up a lot uh, during that was that um, some of the service users in the group were saying that actually compared to things that they'd lived through in their lives before, this was really not a big deal that you hmm. know, maybe some of them preferred uh, being on their own anyway. And so now there was actually less judgment about that, right? So hmm. all these kind of assumptions that we have about people who are vulnerable maybe are not as accurate as we think. And I think um, it would be interesting to see which of those factors really are, are borne out in terms of symptom change. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, for example, you know, someone who's experienced a lot of trauma perhaps in the past is not too bothered by this current situation. The other thing that came up, um, I think this is more in conversation rather than a, a specific, you know, advice from anyone, but um, in, uh, measure it in asking how old people were. So we had initially just, you know, if you're over 70, check this box. 
until someone pointed out that actually you probably do want to differentiate those who lived through World War II compared mm. <laughs> to those who didn't, because for a lot of people, this is, you know, not nearly as impactful or as, as terrifying <laughs> or as scary as, as that was. So yeah. there have been a lot of really interesting kind of conversations that have come up about it. I do think the stats are scary from the number of <laughs> moderators and mediators that we could potentially have, but I'm hoping we have a big enough sample size we can get some power around some of those issues. Yeah, yeah, it's really cool. Um, one of the things that you mentioned is something I'm just super interested in, which is how there are individual differences in how certain types of circumstances can impact mental health, right? And from a treatment perspective, we know that generally when we're running studies on treatments, for instance, we're seeing a spread of, you know, on the average, for the average person who got mm. this treatment, they're seeing this degree of benefit. And there's a bunch of variability around that too. Right. So not every treatment works for every person. Not every person is experiencing the same sort of environmental influences on their mental health, right? Yeah, I totally agree. And it's, it's kind of, it's very easy to assume that this is going to be very hard on everyone. But I think in terms of, you know, when we come to analyzing the data, leaving ourselves open to, you know, making sure we're asking the questions that would allow you to see the effect in either direction, you know, thinking about these groups and, and you know, taking some of the advice on board and the sort of stories we're hearing, these kind of narratives that are coming out, we can actually test those and say, okay, this is, you know, doesn't seem to be a real thing that a lot of people are experiencing. And, and maybe that does come into play, you know, when we, when we are thinking about other contexts or treatment, you know, for older people or for something that, you know, the sort of assumptions that we maybe have about different groups. Um, hopefully, you know, I'd love to see that some of the outcomes of, of this research is that we kind of understand those issues a bit more broadly as well. Hmm. One of the challenges with this outbreak is not knowing how long it's going to last, right? There are changing yeah. estimates about the duration um, that we're, we're continually getting updates on how long it's expected to last, when peaks are mm -hmm. supposed to occur. And so what is the anticipated timeline of the data collection for the study? Yeah, so that's a great question. It's also a headache for us. Uh, yeah. uh, we have sort of some funding support to, to start off the study, but uh, longer term, we definitely have to think about that. Um, the few things that we've got planned in terms of the timeline. So right now, at least in the UK, things are all still quite uncertain. Uh, mm -hmm. We were told two weeks ago that we're in a lockdown for three weeks and then things will be reassessed. So we're not really sure what that means and our mm. prime minister is currently in hospital with uh, coronavirus so yeah. yeah it's unclear so right now we're planning um two weekly assessments so every two weeks people complete surveys online mm. uh in our ethics uh, approval <laughs> um, our <laughs> ethics board agreed that um it would be appropriate then to reduce this to monthly assessments assessments once things become a bit more stable which is obviously a different, difficult thing to define right now, but assuming we get given a longer time frame, you know, say it was a situation where we know we're gonna be like in this for three months or something, maybe we'd re reduce the frequency in order to reduce the burden uh, on our participants. Uh, we also have, uh, we're planning to continue the study um, if we're able to support it for up to six months after the social distancing restrictions are lifted in the UK. So we're looking at the, the impact that, that kind of aftermath as well. Mm. The other fun thing that, that we're including is a super short survey. So it'll be one to two minutes uh, that we can kind of deploy right after a big announcement is made. So to try and sort of take the temperature of what's happening in the couple of days after a big change. Uh, and it's, I think, 
15 questions or something like that. So it should be really quick for people to answer just to get yeah. a kind of sense of what is the immediate impact and how does that relate to the kind of longer term impact of things. Yeah, and, and it's, it's one of the interesting things here too is how the, you know, the uncertainty of the timeline is likely one of the things that's really contributing to mental health problems during this time. Um, mm -hmm. it'll, it'll be interesting to see sort of as data collection continues and once we start to have a better and a stronger sense of what the outlook is going to be, like when are things supposed mm -hmm. to sort of peak, when are things supposed to start to taper off again, how mm -hmm. that may, that sort of timeline might sync up with changes in symptoms as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and thinking about how delayed things might be and, you know, I guess there's a, a lot of the time when we're studying, you know, the impact of stress on anxiety and depression, we don't get this kind of, you know, able to assess you exactly two weeks later and a month yeah. later and, and six weeks later. So it does kind of, you know, the fact that everyone's going through it at the same time, at the same time really creates an opportunity for a study like this that you couldn't really do at any other time. Yeah, this will not be the last pandemic that, that we ever go through as a society. Um, right. And so hopefully we'll be better prepared next time one comes around to understand how this is going to be impacting folks' mental health and potentially what we can do to buffer against those impacts. Yeah, absolutely. That's the hope. <laughs> awesome. So if, if someone wants to get involved and be a part of the study, how would they go about doing this? Well, uh, currently it's active in the UK only. So uh, they would go to our website, which is rampstudy.co.uk. So it's R-A-M-P, the Repeated Assessment of Mental Health in Pandemics. You see what we did there? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> nice. <laughs> uh, so you can also find us on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook, also under Ramp Study. Okay. And if, they, if someone wants to participate right now, they need to be a resident of the UK and they need to be how old? 16 or over. 16 or over. Great. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this was super fun. We'd love to have you come back once you have data and want to share with us some of the things that you're finding. Yeah, I would love to. Thanks for having me. Great to have you. Thanks. My name is Livia Tomova. Um, I'm a postdoctoral researcher at MIT in cognitive neuroscience, working with Rebecca Sachs. So your group at MIT recently uh, published a preprint of a paper uh, looking at acute social isolation and how those effects of isolation look quite similar in the brain compared to hunger, like food cues. And I was curious if you could tell us a little bit more about what that study was uh, aiming to do. Mm -hmm, sure. So we were interested in looking at how social craving is represented in the brain and whether that's similar to other forms of craving, um, like craving for very basic needs like food or other things, um, or whether that's different. Um, so what we did was we asked people to um, not have any social contact for a whole day. So we did it in a way that they came to our lab and they spent 10 hours um, by themselves. And then we scanned their brains and we showed them pictures of um, other people engaging in social activities that they previously told us that are their favorite social activities. And then on another day, we asked the same people to fast for 10 hours and then we scanned their brains and then we um, showed them pictures of food, which was also their favorite food. So actually we showed them um, those pictures, like both types of pictures on each visit. Mm, okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the idea was to try and see how craving for social activity looks similar or different from other types of craving. Uh, and what did you mm -hmm. find? 
Exactly. So what we found was that um, in our major region of interest, which was the Substantia Nigra, which is kind of the core of the motivation center, um, right above our brainstem, we found that activity there was um, modulated depending on the state of deprivation. So basically, when people were fasted and they looked at food cues, um, this area responded with stronger activity, but not in response to social cues. And the same was true after isolation. Um, what we also found was that activity in this area was correlated with um, self-reported um, craving for social contact or craving for food. Um, and what we also found, this was our third analysis, so we used machine learning for that and we trained the classifier um, to differentiate neural patterns between when a person um, is looking at food when, when they're hungry versus a control pattern. And then we, we tested this classifier on um, neural patterns when a person was isolated and looked at um, social cues versus a control pattern. And we tested whether it would be able to, above chance, um, differentiate those patterns, even though it has never seen um, social craving patterns. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, so, so a machine learning algorithm basically is, without too much input from the researchers, is just doing its best to try and classify what the data look like based on, um, based on the particular regions that you're looking at. Right. So in this case, we only looked at the substantia nigra since it was our main region of interest and we expected the patterns there to be um, kind of representing a state of craving regardless of what it was craving for. And this is kind mm. of what we found. So, um, exactly. And the training, it refers to that. It means that kind of it's kind of a part of sort of artificial intelligence. You kind of have a computer algorithm that learns a certain pattern and to differentiate that from another one without you having to like tell it each step that it does. Mm, yeah. So this is this is such a timely publication given um, the COVID outbreak that's been taking place across the world, and you know most most functional magnetic resonance imaging studies take. Um, months, if not years, to be completed. So I'm curious uh, how how that came together, so that this was this was going to be preprint and available for the public on BioArchive right at this time. Yeah, so that was a pure coincidence. Yeah, <laughs> we, we did the study. We started it actually three years ago, and um, yeah, we were about like we finished collecting the data in August, and then we analyzed for quite a long time, and now we we were ready to um, publish a preprint. But mm. yeah, it's kind of crazy that we did it in this like right now, which um, yeah, it's just very crazy. <laughs> it's one of those things. I mean, <laughs> we were just kind of curious because initially there was a study on that um, in mice and colleagues of us, which are also like, who are also on um, like collaborators on this project. They did a very similar study with mice and they studied how isolation uh, would later affect the drive to reconnect with others and they established like a region in the brain that was kind of um, coding for that drive. So when I read this paper that was published in 2016, I was kind of like, hmm, like, could this be true in humans as well? Could we ever test that? That would be super interesting. So, and then Rebecca and I, we discussed it and then we kind of set up this project, but it was like, we had no idea of that it would be very relevant <laughs> right now. Yeah, I'm, I'm imagining that it's maybe March 7th or March 8th, and it's starting to become clear that social distancing measures need to come into place. And mm -hmm. there's this rapid push to get this uh, paper available and, and post it online at that time. Or was there none of that taking place mm -hmm. for you? 
No, we did. I mean, we were more or less ready, but then we thought, okay, we should kind of really get ready now. Yeah. <laughs> it makes yeah, yeah, we did that. But I mean, the, the data was, as I said, it was collected in August. Mm -hmm. So, so based on the results of this study and some of the other work that you've done with craving and with social psychology, what are some of the things that are crossing your mind about the COVID outbreak and how that's going to be impacting people's lives? Mm -hmm. Well, I think one of the major takeaways probably from the study is that it highlights how important it is uh, for people to be connected with others. Like if already one day of being alone makes our brains respond as if we had not eaten for a whole day, it kind of suggests that um, social interactions are a very basic need that we have. Um, so I think in times of social distancing right now, we kind of need to pay attention to this sort of social dimension of this whole crisis as well. So if people are spending all day by themselves um, alone, that might be very detrimental to mental health. And I think there is not that much discussion going on about that right now. Mm. Um, and I think many people are not as affected because many people live with others or have access to digital technologies and can connect with others online. But there are people who don't have that and um, who actually do live alone and who don't have access to digital technologies. And I think that's an actually really awful state to be in right now. Yeah, yeah. I'm imagining someone who not only has acute social isolation and social craving, but might also not have access to food and have, um, have hunger of that nature as well. And, and sort of the combination of those two things, given this potential overlap in how those types of hunger are represented neurally. And I'm, I'm wondering if that would just turn the volume all the way up on that hunger system. Yeah, maybe. I mean, it's kind of unclear how those things interact. Yeah. So um, we like based on the results that we found, it seems that um, it's a very specific thing. Like you kind of want the thing that you are deprived of and it doesn't um, generalize so much. So we did not see that, like, for example, we could have found that people who are socially isolated later also show stronger responses to food cues. Mm. Um, that's not what we found. It was very specific for the social cues. Mm. Um, so, I mean, I guess that opens a question because actually a lot of animal research shows that um, isolation causes changes in motivated behavior. So those animals tend to seek out more rewards, for example, um, food, but also drugs. And there are a lot of animal studies showing that those animals tend to be more prone to develop addictions. Mm. Um, and it's not quite clear how, how our results kind of relate to that yet. So it might be that in humans is maybe just not the same, mm. or maybe, um, maybe it's also a question of duration. So what we did was kind of short-term isolation still. I mean, it was 10 hours, which is, I mean, compared to a lifespan of a human, that's really, really short. Um, and I guess if you did really long, like in comparison, that's how animal studies often do it. Maybe, maybe that causes these kind of interactions between, or maybe it's not interaction, maybe more of a compensation. Like maybe you're trying to compensate for something that you're craving, but you will, cannot satisfy in any way mm -hmm. by, by just over kind of overdoing it on, on something else. But this mm -hmm. is not, I mean, this has not been tested in humans. And, you know, one of the things I'm noticing is that you've done work previously 
looking at uh, processes of empathy and, and of impacts on prosociality. And that seems like a really relevant topic today, given uh, the situation that we all are facing as well. I'm curious if you could talk a bit about how empathy might relate to prosocial behavior during this period of social distancing and where folks might be feeling extra hunger for social interaction. Mm-hmm. Hmm. That's a good question. Um, I mean, I think it's, it could go either way. I can, I can imagine that people could become much more prosocial um, during a crisis like this. And some of the studies that I've done actually kind of hinted towards that. So people under certain like circumstances, um, under stress can become more prosocial and it seems to be mediated over like changes in the brain that are related to empathy. So they show stronger responses to um, like negative emotions of others and then which later kind of um, predicted increases in prosocial behavior. So it seems that um, stress can also like make you more prosocial. Um, but this is not, it's not that clear because other studies have found also the opposite. And it seems um, to be relevant what kind of stress you're exposed to. So the kind of stress that I used in my studies was um, social stress. So basically there are certain paradigms um, that can be used, how you can induce stress in, in, the, in the lab. Um, I mean, I can go into more detail on that, but basically it usually kind of mimics a situation where you have to make a presentation, <laughs> mm. which, um, which works really well for making people stressed. Um, so this is what we did as well. And, um, and with this kind of stress, we find that there seems to be an increase in prosociality. Um, but other studies have actually used other stressors, like for example, physical pain. Um, this mm. is one that is used very often. And those tend to find actually increases in um, egoistic behavior. Mm. So it could be that this is a crucial component of how people react. And, and then it's kind of unclear how they would react um, in a crisis like this, right? Because kind of you're under threat somehow, like your, your, your health and your well-being. But on the other hand, you might also be very worried about others. And it's kind of a mixture of, of social stress and non-social stress, I guess. Um, so it's hard to predict. Yeah. It, so it sounds like there are a lot of things going on here. There are some individual differences that are probably playing a role, but also the type of stress really matters too. And so something like pain versus something like um, social stress versus other types of stress might have different impacts on uh, our willingness and our ability to engage in, in empathy. And so I guess it's an empirical question then how the COVID outbreak will impact people um, and impact their systems of empathy as well. Um, I'm curious if you have any guesses. Mm, Well, (laughs) (laughs) Um, I guess, well, my guess is that it really depends. I guess it also depends on like your individual circumstances. Like, are you someone who is personally affected by, um, being actually ill or is it more that you are I guess worried about others um so those things I think make a huge difference um I I mean I don't know any research on that and I don't think it exists yet but just like what what I see like when I walk outside it seems that kind of both things (laughs) occur like some people seem to be very um difficult right now (laughs) while others are very pro-social and seem to be very um like try to help others. So um, I think it, it seems to be more complex than just mm. like 
one direction. Mm-hmm. Maybe one thing that I think is like really interesting right now is um, is the role of social media that um, hmm. or the role social media plays during this crisis actually because I think in many ways it kind of replaces or or at least um, compensates for social contact that people don't have right now. Mm. And I think that's, I mean, that's kind of cool to have in a crisis like this, but also from a like scientific perspective, I think it's, it's just really, really interesting what it does to, um, to our use of social media and how we kind of interact with that. And, and like, I mean, there's all kinds of parties going on now over social media and things like that, which I guess have happened before too, but I think now it's just, people are becoming really creative in how they use social media to connect. And I think that's really interesting um, and worth studying. Mm, yeah. So looking into how social media during this particular time might, uh, might be playing a role in a lot of the social processes we already know a lot about, but in other contexts. Yeah, exactly. And I think, so kind of the image of social media is often a negative one. And there are studies kind of saying that it increases loneliness, it makes us feel worse, um, it makes us addicted. And I mean, I think there are some negative aspects to it, but I think um, it's not so clear. And other studies actually do find that social media can help um, people make like feel connected. So I think um, we kind of need more research. And then I think now people are kind of also more realizing that that there is a, like, a benefit to being like um, digitally connected as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I'm curious, for your study, are you going to look at just social media consumption in general, or are you going to look at specific interacting with people, especially people that you might not have normal interactions with, like someone from high school that you follow on social media, you might reach out to them, or do you view the social media more as, I'm just consuming it in a more passive way, it's going to have the benefit? Mm-hmm. Well, I think, so we're actually planning a study to looking to look at that, and um, our goal is to sort of differentiate what kinds of usages of social media actually are beneficial and which ones are actually maybe maybe even more harmful. And, and previous research has kind of suggested that this kind of passive usage um, is not really helpful um, in terms of well-being and um, mental health. So it seems that there is... Um, like if people use social media actively, like they chat with others, and as you said, they chat with their high school friend, it seems to have benefits in, in terms of their well-being. Um, but if if they just like scroll through an Instagram page and look at others, it seems that it rather promotes things like um, well comparisons and and not necessarily making people feel better. There's actually one experimental study where the people were instructed to either use I think it was Facebook. Um, passively or actively and then they asked people how they felt and I think it was for just around 10 or 15 minutes and they did find that those people who have just used it passively they they felt worse afterwards so I mean it's just one study and there needs to be more on that and it needs to be replicated but I think I think that's an interesting way to study social media so it's much more interesting than just using screen time and measuring how long someone is on there but actually looking at what 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 are they actually doing when they're online and how are they interacting with others Hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think it'll be really interesting. But this is really cool. Um, and, and we really appreciate it. And this, uh, I think this is a really important topic to discuss too. And it's so timely. And <laughs> it's great to have your work be getting published right at, at the time that it's most needed, which is incredible. Yeah, well, 
It's not published yet, though. Uh, it's, 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 uh, <laughs> it's pre-printed and it's available for folks if they want to read it. Yeah, that's really cool, though. That's kind of one of the advantages to having preprints. I'm very excited about that. Mm, yeah. <laughs> If you'd like to hear more, you can subscribe to this podcast feed on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or a number of other places. It's also available on the Psychology in Action website.